Good morning. It is such a tremendous privilege and a delight to bring the Word of God to you, uh, especially on this day that we have traditionally set aside to uh, commemorate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, where we will eventually be looking at that topic. As you're turning there, I want to begin our time together this morning by referring to an article that was published a few weeks ago that drew my attention. Featured in Christianity Today, the article was entitled, The Church Could Use More Skeptics. Apparently, the church could use more people who question the validity or authenticity of Christianity's truth claims. The church could use more people who maintain a doubting disposition. Here's the opening paragraph of the article. Imagine a sanctuary filled with congregants who all think, believe, and feel the same way about Jesus. They simultaneously respond amen to sermon points and their after-service conversations ring with mirrored sentiments. There's no conflict because there are no points of disagreement. There's no friction because there are no differences. A little further down, an atmosphere without disagreement or variance in perspective is one that stifles growth. What if skeptics, the author writes, that is those who are exploring, challenging, and questioning faith, make churches healthier? Well, as I continued to read, ironically, I became more and more skeptical of the premise. And one of those reasons is we never see doubt or skepticism in the scriptures as something that's to be sought, as something that's healthy for an individual or a church. Rather, it's something to be repented of. What was also unsettling is how the article ended. Here's the last paragraph. A new nationwide campaign encourages those who are skeptical or seeking faith to share their stories, ask their questions, and in so doing, meet the real Jesus. This new nationwide campaign goes by the name He Gets Us. The He is Jesus, as in Jesus gets you. He gets everything you're going through because He was human just like you. And here are some examples of the various ways that an audience is drawn in to this new campaign. Just like you, Jesus did not experience a perfect life. If you deal with bouts of anxiety and worry, take heart. Jesus did too. Jesus understood what life was like for people in his day, especially the marginalized. He struggled with anxiety. He was in broken relationships. He suffered loneliness. He had sleepless nights. The campaign website goes on to say, Given today's increasingly divisive and mean-spirited world, we're all seeking something better. What if Jesus is the example we're searching for? And then at the very bottom, after all of that, we read this. Get to know the real Jesus on your terms. Embrace doubt. Embrace skepticism. Find some common ground. It's ironic you don't have to doubt that part. But find some common ground in what Jesus experienced and what you have experienced. And then you can have this authentic encounter with the real Jesus. He just may be the example you need to get you through this life. This type of message is nothing new. 
in our culture. Jesus historically has been and is still largely accepted and even respected by those who wouldn't call themselves Christians necessarily. But this acceptance and respect is conditioned upon being able to define him or redefine his ministry and life in our own terms. And what this often means is reducing the message about Jesus down to just his life and ministry. This is why we will take most of his sermons and lessons. We'll take his cute metaphors, his stories. We'll take his miracles. As long as we can assign our own significance, our own meaning to those things. For example, why did Jesus feed all those people with bread and fish? Well, the answer is easy. He was a philanthropist. His ministry was about feeding the poor and hungry. Why did Jesus heal the sick? Because his ministry was about relieving human suffering. Why did Jesus rebuke the Pharisees so much? Because he was against organized religion. Why did Jesus hang out with sinners? Because he was showing us that you have to be like them in order to reach them. On our own terms, many will tolerate the life and ministry of Jesus. We'll accept the chapters in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We like those chapters right up until he goes to the cross. Everything before the cross, that's the important part. That's the inspiring part. That's where we get our model. That's where we get our example. But the cross, his death, if those things are even mentioned or focused on, they're just another inspiring way to handle mistreatment. Just another good example of how to die well. What's interesting and very revealing to note is that the apostles preached a much different message when they preached Jesus. As you read about their preaching ministry in the book of Acts, as you read their epistles, they didn't emphasize his life, but rather his death and resurrection. The emphasis in their message is on the end of his life and the theological significance thereof. It's not that the details of his life and his ministry are irrelevant. After all, we're given four gospel accounts detailing those things. But those details cannot be divorced from theology. They cannot be divorced from the plan of redemption. Or you have an incomplete gospel at best. The late theologian J.I. Packer has a helpful statement when it comes to how we evaluate any message that is emphasizing one truth to the detriment of others. He said this, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. This is what Satan has become very skilled at doing. He takes some truth, like here's Jesus' life, here's his ministry. He makes it the whole truth, that's the whole message, and it becomes a complete untruth. Here's what we have to recognize about it for our purposes this morning. Jesus' life means nothing if he didn't die. And his death means nothing if he didn't rise. There's nothing to preach. There's nothing to believe if Christ has not died and been raised from the dead. As we come now to the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15, notice where Paul puts the focus and emphasis of his gospel message. Verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, 
which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Let's stop there for now. Notice that Paul begins where a lot of messages today end. In other words, he skips over the life and ministry of Jesus and he starts his message with his death. Now, obviously, Christ's perfect life, his ministry, his miracles, those are all necessary. In fact, his death would mean nothing without a perfect, righteous life. But nonetheless, Paul just assumes that part and preaches a gospel that focuses on the end of Jesus' life, the end of his ministry. And it is immediately apparent just from an initial reading of this passage that you cannot have Jesus on your own terms because you are not authorized to set the terms. There are fixed objective truths outside of us that determine the authenticity of our relationship with Christ. He sets the terms and conditions. Now, we're going to get into our outline in a moment, but notice that opening clause again in verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the euangelion. This is the Greek word translated gospel throughout the New Testament. We transliterate that into English, and we have the word evangel, referring to the gospel. And that's where we get our word evangelical. Evangelical can refer to a gospel person. He or she is an evangelical or a gospel thing, an evangelical church, an evangelical doctrine. But an evangelical is is that which has something to do with the gospel. What is the gospel? Good news, literally. What good news? As we're going to see in this text, the good news that God saves sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. What's interesting here is Paul's talking to a Christian church. He's talking to evangelicals, and he's telling them, I'm making known to you the euangelion, the the gospel. But we shouldn't misunderstand Paul to say here that he's informing them of something that they've never heard before. This word, some of your versions may even have this, can also be translated, I remind you. So he is reminding them of something that they are starting to drift from. They're starting to waver. Why would a church need to be reminded of the gospel? Why would evangelicals, gospel people, need to be reminded of what it means to be an evangelical? Well, consider the fact that the term evangelical in our culture today means absolutely nothing. And we have our answer. The church is always vulnerable of accepting doctrines and ideas that undermine the gospel. The church is always vulnerable of drifting away from the gospel. In the case of the Corinthians, they denied their own bodily resurrection. In our day and in our culture, it takes a slightly different form. There are many messages about Christ today masquerading in the terminology of the gospel that either explicitly deny it or undermine it. Here are some examples of the various messages today. A message of deliverance from earthly difficulty rather than eternal damnation. A message of politics rather than propitiation. 
a message of health instead of holiness, a message of sentimental stories without salvation, a message of felt needs instead of faith, a message of reconciliation without repentance, or a message about who Jesus was as opposed to who Jesus is. Suffice it to say, with all of these so-called evangelical messages being promoted today, there is a great need for evangelicals to be reminded of what it means to be an evangelical. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see two evidences that you are a genuine evangelical. Two evidences that indicate you can genuinely use that title to describe you evangelical. Let's look at the first evidence. You have an enduring conversion. Verses 1 to 2, an enduring conversion. Notice in verses 1 to 2, Paul details the experience and lasting effects the Corinthians had with his gospel message. And he does so in four relative clauses. Notice the beginning in verse 1 there. Which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. So before he even gives them the content, the actual message, which comes in, in verses 3 to 4, he describes its actual and ongoing and intended effect in their lives. So notice the first one there. Paul says, which I preached to you. That's not the New Testament word for preach. That's actually a word that literally we would say, which I gospelized to you. He takes the word gospel, turns it into a verb. I proclaimed the gospel to you. And that means inherent in this word gospel is the idea of announcing, proclaiming. It's a message that must be delivered. Now, that message can be delivered through the written word of God or through the spoken messenger of God, but it is a message that must come to you. Secondly, this message is received at a point in one's life. Notice what he says next. Which also you received. You believed it. You accepted it. You embraced it. You took it in. When Paul initially came into Corinth, he preached the gospel to them. Acts 18.8. Here's what it says. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. There's the pattern. They heard, they believed, and they were baptized. It means the message is something that is consciously understood. You comprehend the content and then embrace it. This also means then that no one can be saved as an infant when they were baptized because an infant cannot consciously understand the gospel. The Corinthians heard and believed. Notice here in our passage that this initial relationship, we could even say their conversion, didn't end there. It didn't stop when they received it. It has an ongoing impact and relevance in one's life. So notice we move from a past reception to a current position. End of verse 1. In which you stand. In which you stand. So Paul moves from a past tense verb, you received it, to now a perfect tense. So you stood and continue to stand up until this present day in which you stand. You continue in your steadfast commitment, your unwavering conviction in the truth. A genuine evangelical 
has a present stability and steadfastness in the gospel. That, that means that we cannot have a relationship with the truth that is only historical. I walked an aisle, I signed a card, I was baptized, I had some kind of emotional experience with God back then. That's how I know I'm saved today. No, it can't be merely historical. There should be a present conviction, a present standing firm in the truth. Notice verse 2, we come to the last relative clause, by which also you are saved. Now he's at a present tense verb, passive. You are being saved. Saved. Meaning it's not a message of politics or wealth or health or rescuing you from hardships and difficult relationships and loneliness and depression and anxiety. No, it's a message by which you are being saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be delivered by the Trinitarian God from the penalty and power and presence of sin. Two of those become realities in this life when we receive the gospel message. We are delivered from the penalty of sin, both spiritual and eternal death. We're raised up to new spiritual life and from that moment on, forever rescued from eternal damnation. From the moment of conversion, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever. So we are delivered from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. The enslaving power of sin is broken upon conversion. New spiritual life empowered by the Spirit of God. We can now seek God. We can now believe. We can now live godly lives. Not perfection, but a radical new direction, as MacArthur puts it. So deliverance from the penalty and power of sin And then a third reality is still future, deliverance from the presence of sin. This is why the scriptures speak of having been saved, currently being saved, and one day we will be saved because it's talking about salvation from these three different vantage points. Sometimes it is he saved us, past tense, like Titus 3.5. Other times we are being saved, present tense, like our passage here in 1 Corinthians. And other times, it's we will be saved, future tense, Romans 5, 9. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We are saved when we trust in Christ alone. That's justification. We believe and we are declared righteous in God's courtroom. We are being saved as we are sanctified. We battle sin. We pursue holiness. We're becoming in practice what we are in principle. And then we will be saved fully and finally when we're glorified upon our death or the return of Christ. So a genuine evangelical has been saved, is being saved, and one day will be saved. Now notice back in our passage when Paul says they are being saved, he's assuming something else is true as well. Notice verse 2 again. By which also you are being saved if... You hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here is where we begin to get insight as to why Paul is bringing up the gospel to a church that knows the gospel. Because they were in jeopardy of not holding fast to the word that he preached to them. What is the word that he preached to them? Well, that comes next. Let's just notice it before we, we'll get into it in a minute, but 
Let me just read it for us. Verse 3. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Corinthians, you're presently being saved if you hold fast to that message, if you continue to hold fast to that message. That's why I labeled this point an enduring conversion. Because one's conversion experience, one's historical exception of the gospel, it's proved to be authentic in their ongoing belief in that gospel. Paul's not unique in articulating it this way. Same word for hold fast is used in Luke 8.15. I'll just read it for us. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast. And bear fruit with repentance, holding it fast. That's the evidence that you've received it and truly believed it. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians. We're going to take a quick look at Hebrews 3.14. Take a look at Hebrews 3.14. The same terminology is used. Hebrews 3.14 For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now, notice what it says here. Hold fast. He doesn't say hold fast in order to become a partaker of Christ. Rather, it says we have become if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So the condition is still future. But the effect of that condition relates to the past. Be continually holding fast your conviction and you're demonstrating you have become a partaker of Christ. All right, so back to 1 Corinthians 15, 2. We have to make sure and clarify what Paul is not saying. He's not saying you will be saved if you are holding fast the word. You will become saved if you're holding fast the word. No, you're being saved. How do you know? You continue to persevere in your unwavering commitment to the truth. What's the opposite of that in the verse 2? Unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in a way that's not sufficient. Now, what does it mean to believe in vain? Well, it could be that the object of our faith is wrong, wrong content, or it could be a dead faith, as James 2.17 puts it, where all the, the object is right, the doctrine is right, but it's dead. It's an insufficient faith. One can believe in a way that brings no benefit. You can believe in vain. One can believe without carefully considering the gospel and its implications. Here's an obvious example of that one. If one were to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but live as if they are Lord of their life. They are denying the gospel. They're undermining the gospel because you're not living as if Christ is Lord, even though you're saying, I believe in him as Lord. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you truly believed in the Lord, you're going to come under his will, his authority. So one can undermine or deny the gospel indirectly by failing to consider and live out the implications. 
unless you believed in vain, unless you believed superficially, you just have a shallow agreement with the facts and no real substantive grasp of the truth. Now, for the Corinthians, what did this look like? What, did it, what is this potential believing in vain going to look like? Well, those of you who are familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, knowing that the entire chapter is devoted to the doctrine of the resurrection, you might be tempted to say they were denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. That's why Paul believes them, or that's why Paul warns them, hold fast to the word, don't believe in vain, because if you deny the resurrection of Christ, you prove your faith was not genuine. So we might be tempted to say they just believed Christ died for our sins and that he was buried. And then we would say, obviously, you can't be an evangelical if you deny the resurrection of Christ. Well, that's true, but that's not specifically what the Corinthians were denying, at least directly. They were denying the resurrection in general, They're just their own bodily resurrection. For example, look, look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? That's not what, he, that's not what they were saying. How do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's general. See, they weren't specifically targeting Christ's resurrection. They were just saying generally there is no resurrection. And in verse 13, verse 13, Paul shows them the implications of this doctrine. It undermines the gospel itself. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, just generally speaking, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. I'm emphasizing this point because the Corinthians were not explicitly, directly denying the resurrection of Christ. They were implicitly, indirectly denying the resurrection of Christ. And this is so critical for the church to understand because this is often how Satan works. He loves for the church to rally around the lowest common doctrinal denominator so that he can get at the gospel through the side door. He doesn't have to come in through the front door and deny the deity of Christ or add works to the gospel. Though he'll do that where he can. He often will just come rather through, a, through the side door. He'll come at a doctrine one level removed from a foundational doctrine, from a primary doctrine, but he's using that as a way to undermine the gospel. How many times have we heard a statement like this? Hey, at least they get the gospel right. Hey, they believe the Trinity. They believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They believe in justification by faith alone. At least they get the gospel right. Yes, but their entire ministry is full of other doctrines and practices that are a denial of the foundational truths that they believe. Yeah, they don't believe Genesis 1 and 2 is actual history or to be taken literally. They don't believe in a seven-day creation, but they get the gospel right. Maybe, but not for long. 
Because as soon as we can comfortably doubt and deny what God has clearly revealed about creation, it is only inevitable before we are comfortably doubting and denying what God says about salvation. As soon as something other than Scripture becomes an influence in how I interpret Scripture, I will subtract from the Word of God or add to it. History is the basis for theology, as we're going to see. You edit the history, you're going to edit the theology. As it relates to this, look over at 1 Corinthians 15, 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Whatever you do with Adam, you're going to do with Christ. You mess with the biblical, biblical account of Adam, it undermines the gospel, even if you can articulate a faithful gospel. And yet we are naive in the church today in the same way the Corinthians were. We don't think critically about the implications of what we call secondary doctrines, and Satan is using those to undermine the very gospel itself. A genuine evangelical receives the message at a point in time, perseveres by faith in the message and its implications. They have an enduring conversion. That brings us now to a second evidence that you are a genuine evangelical. You hold to an essential creed. You have an enduring conversion and you hold to an essential creed. Verses 3 to 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So here it is, Corinthians, the most important, essential, primary truth I delivered to you. And notice Paul received it. We know from other passages he received it from Christ directly and from other apostles in Galatians 1. I didn't invent this message. I didn't design it. It didn't originate with me. I passed it on to you. I received it, delivered it to you. What is the essential message? Well, notice it begins at the end of Christ's earthly ministry. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So notice first that this essential creed is Christological. It is a message about the person and work of Christ. He is the subject. Christ, as you know, is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament word for Messiah, the anointed one, the promised deliverer. And notice, Christ died. So the message is not only Christological, it's also historical. Paul's referring to a literal historical person and a literal historical event. He, he was hung on a cross and died. There is no gospel apart from literal history. But at the same time, it's not merely history. History is the basis for theology. Notice next, Christ died for our sins. So the message is Christological, historical, and theological. He died for our sins. He died in the place of sinners. He took their sins upon himself and bore the penalty they deserve. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Christ taking the place of sinners, propitiating, satisfying the wrath of God, 
they richly deserved. There's a few different ways that the New Testament expresses this, this truth. I'll just read a few of them for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew twenty twenty eight. He who had no sin was made to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians three thirteen. He died for the ungodly. Romans five nine. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Romans four twenty five. All sins, past, present, future of all who would ever believe, Christ paid the penalty and atoned for their sins. So it is Christological, it is historical, it's theological, and next we see that it is canonical. Canonical. Notice the end of verse 3. According to the Scriptures. It's in conformity with the Scriptures. Obviously, he's talking about the Old Testament here. Not any specific scripture in particular because he uses the plural, the scriptures. The gospels foreshadowed, prophesied, promised in many Old Testament passages. Isaiah 53 is probably the clearest and most explicit. We're actually going to look at that in a moment. But for now, just consider the implications of this phrase according to the scriptures. First of all, anything calling itself evangelical or gospel today must be able to be defended from the Old Testament or it's not evangelical. This also means that although Christ legitimately experienced death, his death was unlike any other death because it was part of God's plan of salvation. According to the Scriptures means the death of Christ was not plan B. It was not an afterthought. It was not an accident He was delivered unto death according to the predetermined plan of God. If there is only a good example, if there's only inspiration in the death of Christ, there's no gospel. There must be divine design in it. So this essential creed is Christological, historical, theological, canonical. And we're going to keep seeing these themes as we continue in verse 4. So Christ died and that he was buried. Again, another historical event, but not merely historical. The the burial was to confirm the finality of his death. He really did die, so they placed him in a tomb. There was no question that he was dead. Notice the final part of verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Died on Friday placed into the grave, remained all of Saturday, and rose on Sunday, the third day. He was raised, a perfect tense verb, which means not only was he raised at that point in history, but he continues on up until this very day in a state of having been raised. Listen to Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. See, Christ's resurrection was not like Lazarus' resurrection or anyone else in the scriptures who were raised from the dead because they all eventually died again, but not Christ. He was raised from the dead 
and he continues on in that state. He is the resurrected and reigning Lord. By the way, his enemies never denied the tomb was empty. Never produced a body. They produced a conspiracy theory. That's about it. They could not deny that the tomb was empty. Notice again, this resurrection was according to the scriptures. Psalm 16, one example. It was prophesied that his body would not see decay, so he was dead long enough where there would be no question he was dead, but short enough where it wouldn't begin the decaying process. Also, let's now turn to Isaiah 53, and we can actually see all three realities here. His death, burial, and resurrection testified to in this rich passage, Isaiah 53. Picking it up in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There's substitutionary atonement. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. There it is, Christ died. Cut off out of the land of the living. Notice verse 9. His grave, here's the burial. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So the Jews would have had him buried right along with the wicked thieves that he was crucified with, but instead he was buried with an honorable burial through the donated tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A rich man in his death. There's the burial. Notice verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. There's the resurrection. All according to the Scriptures. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, the resurrection wasn't private. We don't have time to look at the verses in detail this morning, but notice back in our passage what Paul goes on to say in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." See that repetition of the verb? He appeared, he appeared, he appeared over and over. He died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared to individuals, small groups, large groups, different locations, different times. In fact, as Paul's writing this very letter in the mid-50s, most of the witnesses are still alive. 
The resurrection is theologically essential and historically undeniable. What's the significance of the resurrection? Well, we can't possibly exhaust that in a few minutes. I'll just give you a few highlights. The resurrection affirms Jesus is who he said he was. John 2, 18 to 22. The resurrection affirms the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for sins. He was raised from the dead by the Father, guaranteeing our justification, Romans 4, 25. The resurrection demonstrates that believers will one day rise with Christ and live with him in a glorified, sinless body for all of eternity, Philippians 3, 21. This is the essential creed which produces an enduring conversion when believed. This is what it means to be a genuine evangelical. The evangel, the gospel, foolishness to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved, the power and wisdom of God. The past week I saw a video of a pastor and author by the name of Milton Vincent, and he was explaining the, the glory of the wisdom of the gospel. And uh, I really appreciated how he articulated this. He said this, Imagine 2,000 years ago, somebody saying to God, We have sinned. We have broken the spirit and letter of every one of your Ten Commandments, and we deserve your wrath in the lake of fire forever. But could you send the second member of the Trinity to earth and take on human flesh and have him live the life that we failed to live? a perfectly righteous life? And then could you have him die on a cross and take your judgment and wrath that we deserve upon himself? And then could you have him be raised from the dead, thereby undoing the death that he died so that he would live forever? And then when we come to him by faith, could you, through his shed blood on the cross, forgive us for all of our sins, past, present, and future? And could you take the righteousness of your son and have that credited to us as if we did all those righteous acts ourselves? And then upon us believing in your son, could you give us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and empower us to live righteously? And could you adopt us as your children and allow us the privilege of relating to you as a children with their father? And could you prepare a home for us to live in eternity with you in heaven? Would anyone have thought to pray that 2,000 years ago? Look back at 1 Corinthians 2, 6 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away, but... We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, why didn't they understand what was happening? Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's not referring to the glories of heaven, despite what your Hallmark card might say. This is talking about how we could never imagine or comprehend God's wise plan of salvation unless he revealed it. No one would ever have come up with the gospel by themselves. 
No person would have ever said predestination, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, all those benefits coming to a sinner by faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You're not coming up with that. And yet when we see it, we say that's wisdom. That's power. That's glorious. As Paul said back one chapter earlier in chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What is your response to that message? I want to speak to those who are finding themselves in the first half of that verse. I understand it is an, it's an Easter Sunday, which means some of you are here that probably aren't normally here. And I want to speak to the unbeliever here this morning. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for tolerating my message <laughs> and listening. Uh, thank you for accepting your friend or family member's invitation to come or however you decided to come. Thank you for joining us. The fact that you are here to hear this message is an evidence of God's grace and mercy in your life. But up until this point in your life, maybe, the, maybe you've been antagonistic to the gospel, hostile to the gospel, uh, maybe just indifferent, whatever it may have been or might be. The first thing I want to say to you is that the church at large in our day owes you an apology. Evangelicals need to repent for failing to understand what it means to be an evangelical. The church needs to repent for how it has tried to reach you. The church needs to repent for trying to be cool enough to impress you. The church needs to repent for thinking we can add this to the gospel or we can take away this part and make it a little more credible, a little more appealing for you. The church needs to repent for lying to you and telling you you can have Jesus however you want him. It can be on your terms. The church needs to repent for trying to persuade you to accept a Jesus that you don't really need. I understand why you think you don't need Jesus because you've been told he'll meet your loneliness and you're not lonely. You've been told he'll heal your depression and anxiety, but you're not depressed and you're not a worrier. You've been told he'll be there for you in your broken relationships, but your relationships are great. You've been told he'll give you peace and happiness and a fulfilled life, but you're feeling pretty fulfilled these days. We don't blame you for rejecting some shallow, superficial gospel that you don't need. We reject that along with you. But with those things said, let me share what you do need to know. The resurrection of Christ Jesus is not only good news for believers, it's a warning to those who don't believe. Because Christ is going to return, he's going to come back to fully and finally deliver his people, but also judge his enemies. What's the standard of his judgment? Perfection. Perfection or punishment. Those are the two options for every person on the face of the earth. Perfection or punishment. You must be righteous and holy as God is righteous and holy, or you will be condemned for all of eternity. And you know by your life and your conscience, you know you've fallen short of God's standard. You know you haven't worshipped him and loved him the way you ought. You know you haven't treated others the way you ought in your life. 
And furthermore, anytime your conscience testifies to your guilt and to the existence of God and the truth of the gospel, you suppress it in unrighteousness. You won't let it come into your heart. But here's what you need to understand. You don't have to experience judgment. God has provided a way for you to be righteous before him, to meet his righteous requirement in Christ as his righteousness is given to you and also have all your sins punished for in the person of Christ. Here's why you need Jesus. Okay? Here's, here's what you can't have apart from Christ. Forgiveness from God, reconciliation with God, righteousness before God, eternal life with God. These only come through Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Creation and your conscience testify that this is true. But there's one final evidence that testifies, the resurrection. God put creation on notice when Christ was raised from the dead. Acts 17.31 says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You cannot live your life thinking if God would just give me proof. He has. It's the resurrection. That's the proof. God is commanding you this Easter Sunday, repent, believe the gospel, Turn away from sin, turn toward Christ as your Savior and Lord. Experience forgiveness, everlasting life with Him. Let's pray. Father, for those who believe, may these truths be an encouragement to our hearts. May our understanding be deepened. May our evangelism be more informed, more urgent. For those who don't believe, we ask that you would do in them what you did in each of us who do believe, that you would apply this resurrection power to their heart. We, we know that you don't delight in the death of the wicked. We know that you are rich in mercy. And so we ask that you would make them alive in Christ. You draw them to yourself in such a way that they would see themselves how you see them and they would see the gospel as it really is, the power and wisdom of God. Glorify your great name by accomplishing these things for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we ask, amen.